Thank you so much. It is a privilege and a joy to be here. I love your pastor. I've known him for over 25 years, and uh, he and his wife, Cynthia, friends of uh, mine, and my wife, Terry, and it's just a joy to be here with you at Grace Covenant. We were kind of doing a, a little pulpit exchange, I suppose, because I had your pastor take the pulpit for me back in, I think it was August. It was this past summer, July or August, and uh, he, he did remark. He said, listen, I, I pastor a church around the corner, but he, but he said to our congregation at Cornerstone, he said, but if this is your home church, please stay here. Please stay here. So now, now here I am at, at the church he pastors, and so I just want to say to you, if Grace Covenant is your home church, you go wherever you want. That's what I have to say. I don't, no, I'm, ki- I'm kidding. I'm totally teasing. You stay here. You have a great pastor, and it's a privilege and a joy to serve the Lord and His kingdom's work here in Northern Virginia with your pastor. And uh, I, I love him. He is genuine. He is Christ-centered. He loves the Lord, and, and um, it's just a joy to be here. I'd have a whole lot of other good things to say about him, but he only gave me 30 minutes, so we got to cut right to it. Would you take your Bibles, please, and go with me to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. While you're finding your place there in Psalm chapter 8, just a quick background, of course, most of you are aware of the fact that the book of Psalms, 150 chapters, is really the ancient songbook of Israel. Each of these chapters was originally put to music, and these are the songs that would be sung, even still today, in, in the Jewish synagogues. The Psalms are the songs that are sung to the Lord. Out of the 150 Psalms, uh, King David, the second king of Israel, is the one who wrote the, the most. He wrote 73 out of 150 Psalms, at least those Psalms that have his name attached as a byline. He may have written a few others that have no byline, but at least we know 73 are attributed to him. And Psalm chapter 8 is one of those Psalms that is attributed to David. So I'm going to read here all of Psalm 8. It's only nine verses And then we'll uh, dig out this chapter together today. This is what it says. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth." Notice with me that Psalm 8 here begins and ends the same way. Verse 1 and verse 9 are identical. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8 is about the majesty of God. This is about the majesty of God. David is basically saying throughout this psalm, Lord, your majesty extends to the ends of the earth. There is no place that you cannot go but that God's majesty extends throughout the world, throughout the universe. The word majesty or majestic in the Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament, is the word adir. 
And Adir translates excellence, mighty, glorious, powerful. And this is the kind of word that is used to describe the Lord. It's used many times in the Old Testament, Adir, to describe how majestic God is. For example, in Exodus 15, 11, it says, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? In Psalm 96, verse 6, it says, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Majestic is a royal term. It is a regal term. It is a term reserved for kings. And this is who God is, and this is how David describes him, as majestic in all his ways. And so David is going through the course of chapter 8 here. He's going to point out three particular marks of the majesty of God. Three particular marks of the majesty of God. And then near the end, he's going to summarize all this with kind of a jaw-dropping observation about how the majesty of God applies to every single one of us. So I've entitled today's teaching, A Majestic God Cares About You. A Majestic God Cares About You. Let's first pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the opportunity to be here at Grace Covenant, Lord. What a great work you're doing in our community, through this church. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless all that you're doing through them. I pray, Lord, your blessing on Pastor Brett, my friend, that in this time of refreshing for him, you would just uh, minister your grace and your love to him and Cynthia and the family. Thank you, Lord, that we get to be here to worship you freely in your house and to open up your word now. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. And everyone said, amen. On April the 14th, 1865, John Wilkes Booth fatally shot President Abraham Lincoln. And right after John Wilkes Booth shot the president, he leapt from the balcony there where the president was seated at Ford's Theater down onto the stage, at, uh, at, and at that point, he broke his leg in the process. So he went then to a nearby doctor, a medical doctor by the name of Dr. Samuel Mudd, who lived just a a little while from here in Waldorf, Maryland. And Dr. Mudd uh, set uh, Booth's leg and uh, put a splint on it and attended to him as a medical doctor. And then the questions began to arise, how did John Wilkes Booth know to go to Dr. Samuel Mudd's? Farm. What was the relationship there? And after an investigation, it was determined that Dr. Samuel Mudd was part of the conspiracy to assassinate President Abraham Lincoln. And uh, he denied it. He said he was innocent, but a military tribunal was convened and found him guilty. And he escaped the death penalty by just one vote. Now, he continued to maintain his, his innocence over the years. In fact, his descendants, as, as late as 2003, appealed to an appellate court in the United States to have his record expunged because they believed in the innocence of their ancestor, Dr. Samuel Mudd, but to no avail. And so the conviction still stands today. And as a result of his conviction, there's a saying that has now come about in common usage. Because Dr. Mudd's Name and reputation was tarnished as a result of his being found guilty of conspiracy to kill the President of the United States. The saying today for someone who has lost a reputation, whose name has been tarnished, is, your name is mud. Now, a lot of people think that that saying just means your your name is like dirt. That's not it. 
The saying came from Dr. Samuel Mudd's name, M-U-D-D, your name is Mudd. You tarnish your reputation, you, you tarnish your name, your name is Mudd. When David starts out Psalm 8 here, he starts with the name of God. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The first mark of God's majesty, if you're taking notes, number one is the magnificence of God's name. The magnificence of God's name testifies to the majesty of who God is. Now, in this first verse, David uses two names for God. If you'll notice in your Bibles, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. The first Lord is all caps. Do you see that in your Bibles? All caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The second word is Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, and it's distinguishing something for us in the Hebrew. When you find the name of God, Lord, all caps, it's the proper name of God. In, in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. It's after the Hebrew word uh, Yaha, which means, uh, or Hayat, which means uh, to be. It's, it's, a, it's a verb that means to be, and literally his name translates the one who was, is, and ever shall be. He's the self-existent one. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. That word, that name, that proper name of God, Yahweh, is used more than 6,500 times in the Bible. Now, we've anglicized it in our English, so a lot of times, instead of saying Yahweh, we'll say Jehovah. Same, same thing we're talking about. Proper name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah. And that's the first way that David starts here, saying, O Lord, O Yahweh, your, O Lord our God, O Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. First time that God revealed his proper name, Yahweh, was in the burning bush with Moses. Do you remember that story in Exodus chapter 3? When Moses was raised up by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, and Moses says to the Lord in the burning bush conversation, he says, okay, Lord, now they're going to ask me. They're going to ask me, who sent you? And when they ask me that, what should I say? What is your name? And God's from the burning bush says, you tell them, I am that I am has sent you. Well, that clears it up, doesn't it? <laughs> I am that I am. Well, but God was saying, I'm the self-existent one. I was, I am, I always shall be. There's no beginning, there's no ending to me. In fact, in Revelation 1 verse 8, the Lord says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So he is Yahweh, he's Jehovah, he's the Lord. He is the Lord, our Lord. Second word used here is a title. Capital L, small O-R-D. In Hebrew, it is Adonai. He is Yahweh, he is Adonai. It is a title, it is a title of reverence. It means, just as it is, Lord, Master, uh, the one who is uh, powerful over all. It's a, it's a very respectful title and in fact, in many uh, Jewish circles today, the Jews won't even utter the name Yahweh like I'm saying with you, because it, they hold it in such reverence that even in Scripture where the word Yahweh is used as the proper name of God, Jews today will just substitute the title and they'll say Adonai. They won't even utter the name Yahweh because they feel it is too uh, a worshipful of a name that they don't even want to utter it on their lips, so they'll often defer to Adonai. They'll say Adonai where it might say Yahweh, or they will say Hashem, which just means the name. But this is how David starts this, because listen, a name is important. A name communicates reputation and character. 
This is why David remarks about the name of God. It, it communicates something about his reputation, something about his character. Look, it's the reason why, those of you who are parents, you are very particular in selecting the names of your kids. Because names are going to communicate something, and you want to make sure it communicates something right. So you scoured those baby name books, or you went online and you looked at all the names, or maybe there's a, a traditional family name that runs in your family and you wanted to preserve that because it says something, it, it reveals something good, something about the character and nature that you wanted your child to receive. You know, and some people have done wonderfully with this. You know, they picked wonderful names. I got, I got people in my church who, they got, they got kids like a walking gospel. I mean, they... <laughs> They got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Isn't that special? Aren't you spiritual? You know, I, I got to be honest with you. Terry and I, my wife and I, we weren't that spiritual when we picked the names of our kids. You know, when we picked the names of our kids, first thing we did was we eliminated the names that we don't want. Did you ever go through that list? We were like, okay, former, for Terry, former boyfriends for me, former girlfriends, no names. Especially if they dumped you. Anybody feel me? <laughs> Not that it ever happened to me, but I'm just saying, you know, go with me. You, get, you, you don't use the name of the co-workers you don't get along with. You don't use names of some rival kid you, you were competing in, in school with. And so you, you narrow it down to a few names. So Terry and I, we, we, weren't, we weren't very spiritual. We gave our kids middle names that were from the Bible, but the first names were just Tyler, Austin, and Lindsay. That's what we named our kids. They're just like, you know, they're, they're good names. For, uh, they were common names. You just name it, Tyler, Austin, and Lindsay. Do you, know, do you know, though, that people would come up to us still to this day, and they'll say to us, what did you all do? Were you, are you all from Texas? Are you all from Texas? Because, you know, Tyler, Austin, and Lindsay are the names of towns and cities in Texas, which we, did, we didn't really know that. I mean, we just, you know, just picking names. So now everybody's like, you all from Texas? You all from Texas? Like, no, we're not from Texas. I got, I got so tired of it now that when people ask, I say, yeah, and we're still shooting for Waco. <laughs> still shooting for Waco. But n names are important. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. By the way, in case you didn't notice, there's actually a commandment about respecting the name of God. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. It's the third commandment. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Let me just say something to you. Your pastor isn't here, so I can pretend to be your pastor for just a moment. If you get mad and you're using the name of the Lord in vain, stop that. Stop that. His name is majestic shall not be misused. If you want to use a name, when you get mad, use the name of some false god. You stub your toe. Oh, Buddha. Yeah, they just let it rip. Just go. It's all right. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. Sweet Dalai Lama. I mean, just go ahead. Just use, use some false God's name, but leave the name of the Lord your God's name as holy on your lips. 
In Psalm chapter 34, verse 3, glorify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together. Psalm 29, verse 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. David said, one mark of the majesty of God is the name of God, the magnificence of his name. The second thing that he says in this chapter, another mark of the majesty of God, which actually seems out of place at first glance, is number two, the innocence of children. The innocence of children testifies to the majesty of God's name. If you look in verse two, he says it in verse two, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Now again, notice it looks almost out of place. What in the world do babies have to do with the majesty of God? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise? Even at 3 a.m., Lord? <laughs> when they want one of those 3 a.m. feedings and you get up in the middle of the night, you step on a Lego and you're barefoot? You don't feel like praising the Lord either, I bet. And David writes here about there's this connection with the praise off the lips of children and the majesty of God. And he even, this is even seemingly more out of place, the second part of verse 2 where he talks about silencing the foe and the avenger. How is it that the lips of children and infants actually silences the foe and the avenger? Now understand the context of what David is saying here. In order to appreciate the majesty of God, you have to understand the value of children. Children are a gift from God. They are precious in His sight. Children are God's creation, whether that baby was a planned pregnancy or an unplanned pregnancy. That baby is precious to the Lord and must be protected from the womb to the tomb. And every time a baby cries, every time a baby cries, he or she is offering sweet praise to the ears of God that drowns out the mocking sounds of God's enemies. God hears the praises of children just in their babbling, just in the lips, because they're uttering just in their innocence and their wide-eyed wonder as children do. They're uttering something that to the sound of God's ears sounds very wonderful because it's the sound of a reminder that they are His creation. It's the sweet sound of a child. When a child cries, it testifies to the majesty of God. When a child coos, it testifies to the majesty of God. When a child laughs, don't you love to hear kids laugh? It testifies to the majesty of God. And in so doing, David says, it draws a sharp contrast between the mocking sounds of God's enemies and the sweet sound of children. He says, off of the lips of children, you have ordained praise, and it drowns out the mocking scoffers of God's enemies. And have you noticed how children are often the ones that in their childlike faith are quicker to respond to the truth of who Christ is than adults? Because adults, see, we get to a place where we just get a little too sophisticated, And we, we think we're all that, and that we, that we know everything. See, kids, kids, just the beauty of kids are they're just like, 
they're, 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 so, they're so tender and they're just so real and, 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 and there's no pride about, there's no pretense about a little kid. They're just too young to know any different, right? They don't care their socks don't match. We do. You know, they don't care they got mustard on their face. They got boogers in their nose. They don't care. They don't care because there's no pretense, there's no arrogance, there's nothing showy about a little kid. They're not even aware of their world enough to ask those questions that, that some of us ask when we get older. I mean, have you ever seen a four-year-old girl say, does this dress make me look fat? No. <laughs> she doesn't even know yet. She's not even thinking that yet. Or some little boy who wakes up with bed head. He doesn't care. He's going to go out of the house. Mom's running around with a brush. Let me comb your hair before you go out of this house. He doesn't care. Because kids are kids. Until they grow up a little bit. Then they grow up and they get a trophy, even if they didn't win anything. <laughs> What's up with that? I don't get that. You know, back in the day when I was a kid, you got a trophy when you won. Not even if you lose, you get a trophy for losing. <laughs> and so then they start to, you know, think that they're all that. They get a trophy even if they didn't win. They, you know, they start scoring their first touchdown in peewee football, and people start giving them attention, cheers, and accolades. Nothing wrong with encouraging your kids. I'm all about that. But at some point between the innocence of being a little kid and growing up into adulthood, they begin to think, I'm all that. Oh, I'm all that. I can tell you. I can remember when I became aware of it in my own life, now this is going to date me a little bit, but some of you are going to relate to this, okay? Do you remember the day, do you remember the day when elementary kids were patrols? Do you remember when you were patrols? How many, how many former patrols do we have in the house? All right. Now, for those of you who had no clue what I'm talking about, it used to be that fifth-year-old kids were crossing guards. Today, they're deputy sheriffs. That's true. But it used to be in the day, fifth-year-old kids were crossing guards, okay? So I remember being in fifth grade. I'm 10 years old, and they give you this, um, this, yeah, it's like a sash, this belt thing that you wore, and then it tied around your waist. Some of you are you're remembering. And then they would give you badges to put on the sash. I mean, like real metal badges, like you're a cop. You're in fifth grade. And they had ranks. And I remember the day that they pinned on my sash the coveted captain's badge. Oh, the captain's badge. And I'd stand at the crosswalk doing the thing, you know, that you do. You got to hold your arms out so kids won't come across into traffic. So you got everybody younger than you, like nine and younger, right? You're 10. And I'd be standing at the cross guard and I'd be, not yet, kids. All right, you may go. <laughs> Stop. Get thee behind me, little Satans. <laughs> now you may go. And I remember the day that in my head I just thought, man, I'm kind of all that. I'm kind of all that. I got the captain's badge, you know? And it starts to go to your head. And so what happens is typically what happens. Little things like that end up going to your head. You end up growing up into adulthood and then suddenly you think, man, I'm all that. I'm all that. Now you're an adult and you're like, I'm all that. I don't need Jesus. I don't need the Lord. I'm all that. I got my act together. Maybe other people need him because they need a crutch. Not me. I've got myself all together. Let me tell you something. The kids are smarter than you. Kids are smarter than you. 
You see, in Matthew chapter 18, there's this scene when Jesus' own disciples thought they were all that, and they were asking, who's the greatest? These are the hand-selected ones Jesus picked. This is the A team. There's no B team here. <laughs> and they're talking amongst themselves. Which one of us is the greatest? And in Matthew 18, Jesus took a little child, and he had the child stand in front of them. And then Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you become like one of these, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. You have to humble yourself like one of these kids before you can ever enter the kingdom. If you want to be great, you got to be least. you got to look at the example of this child. This is the hammered paraphrase that Jesus says to his disciples. You ain't all that. I want you to learn from this little child here about humility, about childlike faith, about being least of things. Did you know that in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus actually quotes this verse we're looking at here from Psalm 8 verse 2. He quotes this in Matthew 21 when the religious leaders who were so full of themselves heard little kids in the temple courts praising God. Remember this? Little kids are praising the Lord, crying Hosanna to the son of David. And the religious leaders came up to Jesus and said, do, do you hear what they're saying to you? And Jesus said, yes. And have you never read from Psalm 8 verse 2? Out of the mouths of babes will come songs of praise. Children serve to be an example and a testimony of the majesty of God. The third and the final mark that David notes here in chapter 8 is the evidence of creation. The evidence of creation. God's majesty is reflected in the beauty and wonder of his handiwork. If you'll notice in verse 3, he says, When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Now that word consider, he says, when I consider, it's a Hebrew word that means to ponder, to study, to reflect. When I meditate, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, just the moon and the stars. David, David limits it to just even the discussion about moon and stars, not even the whole spectrum of the universe. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. Listen, friends, creation testifies to the majesty of God. I, I, I know I'm speaking among friends here, and so you'll, you'll get what I'm about to say. But the truth is that an intelligent, open-minded examination of this universe in all of its splendor and complexity and grandeur will point us to none other than a single divine designer whose name is the Lord God Almighty. He's the creator of this universe. Sir Isaac Newton, one of the most influential scientists of all time, father of the law of motion and gravity, also of calculus, he said this in 1686. He said, quote, This most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as Lord over all. And on account of his dominion, he is wont to be called Lord God, universal ruler, end quote. The Bible says in Psalm 19, 1 and 2, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. And just in considering the moon and the stars, what David could observe, he understood an aspect of the majesty of God. Consider, if you will, here's just some scientific facts about the moon and the sun and the stars. In regards to the moon, 
The moon is 240,000 miles from the earth. The moon continually orbits the earth with clockwork precision, traveling around the earth at 2,288 miles per hour. It completes its journey around the earth in about 30 days, which is where we get the idea of a month. If the moon were just a few degrees off, the world would be flooded with, uh, with unrestrained tides. Consider the sun. It's 93 million miles from earth. It's 400 times the size of the moon, but because it is 400 times further from the earth than the moon, it looks to the naked eye like the same size, the sun and the moon. But the sun is 400 times the size of the moon. It has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If the sun were just a few degrees closer, we would fry. If it was just a few degrees further, we would freeze. Consider stars. After the sun, the next closest star is 25 trillion miles away. There are an estimated 100 billion stars just in our Milky Way galaxy. In the 1990s, we thought that there were only 3,000 galaxies. But today, after the Hubble Space Telescope and other more sophisticated instrumentation, we now estimate that there are not 3,000 galaxies, but 10 trillion galaxies. And in each galaxy, with 100 billion stars, that's a total of one with 24 zeros after it, the number of stars in the universe. And Psalm 147 verse 4 says, He determines, God determines, the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Now, friends, listen. All of this testifies to the majesty of God. But don't, don't lose me here because this is the pivotal point where David makes this comment. He talks about the magnificence of God's name, the innocence of children. He talks about the evidence of creation. All of these things testify to the majesty of God. And then he asks this pivotal question in verse 4. What is man? that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. David says, Lord, in all your majesty and brilliance and grandeur and splendor and power and might, how is it that you care about me? How is it, Lord? How is it? That you, the creator of the universe, you who flung all the stars in outer space, you who are so mighty and magnificent and majestic in all your ways, how is it that you care about me? But that's what he's saying, because his realization is, as I behold the majesty of God, as I see him displayed in the universe and among children and just in the substance of his name, what moves me is not just the majesty of God, but that this majestic God cares about me. Some of you need to hear this. Because see, it's easy in our lives to intellectually know that God cares about me, but he wants it to get into our spirit. He wants us to know he cares about you. He cares what you're going through. He cares about your family. He cares about your marriage. He cares about your prodigal kids. He cares about your job. He cares about your future. He cares about your strained relationships. He cares about your health. He cares about every single thing concerning us. This great, magnificent, majestic God cares about you. Nahum would say it this way in Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. 
In Psalm 55, 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares.